Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Dr. David Asher of the Hudson Institute on whether sanctions on Russia and its leaders are working and how America can make life harder for Vladimir Putin to stop his war in Ukraine. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, on what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, indeed, wouldn't be Monday unless you were joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. So, uh, Byron, uh, let me uh, start off, and we will get to the week ahead uh, in just a moment, but I wanted to start off uh, with earnings last week. Obviously, as uh, everybody heard on the program, uh, on the business roundtable yesterday, a lot of major companies uh, reporting, whether it was uh, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, uh, L3 Harris, Raytheon Technologies, uh, Embraer, and and others, Talus, Safran, uh, MTU as well on the engine side of the universe. Talk to us about what you thought some of the key takeaways from earnings were. Well, my focus, Vago, was primarily on the U.S. Uh, defense contractors. I should say that the companies were defense is a factor. Um, and then you had Lockheed uh, report the week before. But, you know, I think there were a couple of things that, that were intriguing to me. First was the number of companies that had declining uh, organic sales comparisons from first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter last year, the March quarter, whatever their, their fiscal year was. And by organic, I mean, stripping out the impact of acquisitions or divestitures, because there, there's some of those two in this group. Um, I don't think that should have been a real surprise because the federal government had been operating under a, a continuing resolution up until mid-March. And I think there was some caution, you know, kind of pushing ahead with, with programs when they're there was still some uncertainty about when you when when we're going to see uh, FY22 appropriations enacted, which of course did happen. And I think you know maybe backing that up a little bit, and why I don't think this was such a big deal for the contractors was the fact that most of the companies um, there were one or two very minor exceptions, but most kind of stuck with their full year guidance um, for for sales expectations for 2022. The other thing, and this kind of dovetailed to uh, outlooks, <clears throat> I was curious, you know, how much, how many analysts tried to get companies to comment on what the FY23 budget and what the Russia-Ukraine war meant for out-year growth expectations. Um, you had a lot, of, a lot of those questions posed to management. And I also think that appropriately, people really said, well, yeah, it's, these are potentially positive changes, but it's really just too soon to start dialing those into, um, into estimates that financial analysts are going to publish. Um, and in part because I think, you know, companies haven't completed their, uh, their annual strategic planning cycles. That usually starts in the, you know, for some it started now, but it'll extend through till the fall. Um, <clears throat> you still don't have the FY23 defense budget. And I think as, you know, Michael Hurston has commented on a number of occasions um, uh, on your Friday show, uh, 
the number is going to be more than the FY23 request that was submitted by the administration. But the question is, how much more? Um, and, you know, you, the same thing is true for Europe, where there have been some pretty interesting commitments to increase defense spending and some announcements by Germany, for example, to buy Chinook helicopters and F-35 aircraft. But contract awards, you know, when did the delivery schedules actually get laid in? And, and in any event, this is something that's going to play out for the industry in the 2024-2025 timeframe. Um, I will say, though, I think companies, managements probably could have done a little bit better job at explaining that there has been a change in the environment. And I, I really wish they would have talked about more about what they're doing to anticipate that change. Right. Uh, Lockheed Martin, the CEO, spoke at an Atlanta Council event on Friday <clears throat> and had talked about um, you know, really starting to ramp up production on some of these weapons that are being sent over to uh, Ukraine and the weapons you know, that they think are going to be in higher demand. And he just didn't say that during the earnings call. And I think that was kind of an important signal to send that <clears throat> you know, you're laying the groundwork in terms of discussions with suppliers and customers in terms of what your hiring plans are going to be in terms of what you're doing for capital expenditures and, and what kind of supplies are you trying to secure now so that when the, these growth signals do start to come through, you can respond to them uh, with, with some alacrity. And maybe that was something I wish, you know, there are still companies going to report this week and next. I, I, I would hope that managements might talk a little bit more openly about, you know, what are their long-term plans and how are they changing without necessarily hanging well, here's our new sales number that we expect right. to hear, our new growth rate. We do have an expectation of uh, more money. And on all of these conference calls, right, I mean, the industry has said we're uh, ready to tackle production as long as the government helps us facilitate. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're building at whatever rate we're building for all of these weapons. And some of these weapons, um, you know, do not have a very robust string, in part because we have large reserves. It's obvious we're sending over a lot more stuff uh, to uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, then we, you know, originally were being open with. I'm one of the people who's, who thinks we should be a little bit more quiet about how we furnish that aid. How does this $33 billion uh, package that the president is seeking, uh, Nancy Pelosi and congressional leaders have indicated this is going to get greenlighted, 20 billion of it plus is for aid. This is Italy's defense budget effectively, Byron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. right? what, is this, what does this package mean for the industry in the near term? And then what does it mean in terms of re-gearing for the long term? Because it looks like Right. If we are going to spend another hundred billion on top of this, that's a pretty sizable improvement that does offset inflation, but actually maybe sets us up for somewhat more robust future downstream as we try to build up capabilities, not just to to address the Russia threat, but also to be pointed at China. I don't know, but I mean, I think we're still kind of in the fourth, you know, there were what five stages of grief, and I think there are five stages of military aid to Ukraine. Um, you know, the first was the, the really quick, you know, let's get him ammunition, very, very simple stuff, um, you know, back in January and, and February, then you saw the move to um, get some, you know, <clears throat> javelins and laws, you know, some, some infantry weapons. That was the second stage. Third stage was the, um, let, let's, let's look at all the former Warsaw countries that have kit or uh, ammunition or spares that the Ukrainian military could use. The fourth stage is what we're seeing unfold now, which is 
oh, we're really willing to start supplying excess NATO standard weapons <clears throat> that the Ukrainians have not operated. So things like 155 millimeter ammunition howitzers, um, self-propelled artillery when they've never operated that kit before. And I, I suppose the fifth stage, that's what's really going to get interesting here is, you know, at what point do we actually start selling Ukraine um, advanced European or US military equipment? Um, that's a ways away. So I tend to think that it, first, it's very hard to map exactly where all this new money is going to go to. The, the president is going to be in Troy, Alabama at the Javelin facility this week. And then I will say one other thing. I think it, it, one minor surprise to me, not that I should be surprised, but during the Raytheon call, um, you know, their CEO chairman talked about how difficult it was to increase production of the Stinger missile because the U.S. hadn't bought this in 18 years. You've got older parts that just aren't being produced anymore. They kind of go, come on, you know, that, that's a standard U.S. surface-to-air missile system um, that's still in use today. You know, there was no plan uh, to have that backstop so that there could be a quick turn if, if we needed it. I mean, I think, so this is, it's kind of a broader issue that we've kicked around a little bit, but I don't think the industrial base in this country is really ready um, to flex the way a war would, would cause it to, or compel it to flex. And, um, and I keep saying this, you know, I, I don't think industry is necessarily sending the best signal when they buy billions of dollars of stock back. And at the same time, our own calls kind of bemoaning that, um, oh, you know, well, well, we can't bring Stinger up because, you know, we can't get the spare parts. Well, that, that, there should have been a plan for that years ago, um, but say la vie. Uh, well, uh, ex ex exactly so. Uh, very quickly, because we've got about two minutes left, uh, one minute uh, or less. <laughs> um, you, you noted, right, I mean, early on in this crisis, Byron, we discussed that you, you were worried that defense spending increase would be f somewhat more fleeting. You've changed your perception. You think it's going to be somewhat more sustained uh, on the part of Europeans. Why? Um, well, I, I think because the situation in Russia, you know, there, there was actually a very good event that Wilson Center held on last Friday uh, with some members of the Ukrainian think tank. And, you know, one of the two, two points that I made, I think, were interesting were um, <clears throat> Putin's got domestic staying power for a number of reasons that they went through. And the second point, and I think you're the your guest on this show also had the same set of comments, the sanctions are going to be fairly leaky. I mean, as much as they're going to put a, a, a hold on a lot of Russian economic development, they're not going to be airtight. And you are kind of seeing an east-west setup. So, and I think also, and this kind of came out of the, uh, the Wilson Center event, you know, there are outcomes where Putin could be deposed and you have even more radical nationalists uh, inner power in Russia. So just until you really get your arms around what exactly the Russian threat will look like, um, you know, it, but I don't think I don't think the one that Russia kind of, you know, drops all its views and, and abruptly pivots and says we want to be part of the West. Um, and foregoes any kind of military confrontation or military power that could challenge the West, that's just not going to be in, in the cards. And I also think, you know, the fact that the, we're just not seeing a speedy conclusion to this conflict, it's probably going to go on for months and maybe even longer than that. And uh, last uh, question in about a minute, 
um, give us a uh, tour on what it is uh, our audience needs to be tuning into over the coming week. Um, you know, Senate hearings, um, the Air Force posture statement, uh, Senate Appropriations Defense Subcommittee on the DOD budget. Um, CSIS has an interesting event on marine uh, force design. Uh, that's been a very interesting and topical um, issue. Uh, <clears throat> Brookings has something on kind of national defense strategy on Thursday. And Oshkosh is doing their annual investor meeting in New York on Friday. Um, I, they're kind of intriguing. You know, people kind of think of them as JLTV, but, um, you know, they're teaming for the next generation armored system the, uh, the, the Army's looking at. They're, they're just an interesting player in defense. And uh, I know there's more to Oshkosh and defense, but um, they, they probably have some interesting things to say. Uh, certainly, certainly an interesting and very capable. Uh, Byron, uh, honor and pleasure having you on the program always. Thanks very much for uh, joining us. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors. HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's uh, annual meeting. And joining us now is Dr. David Asher, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Think Tank and one of the world's leading experts on sanctions, having been the architect of the George W. Bush administration's targeting of Banco Delta Asia in Macau that proved so devastating it prompted China and Russia to pressure North Korea into denuclearization talks. He also served uh, in the Obama administration to craft sanctions that destroyed the financial capabilities of ISIS. David, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks as always, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, great to have you uh, back on. Um, you talked to us a couple of weeks ago, right? Sanctions uh, imposed on Russia to date have been unprecedented in many cases. Europe now is eyeing shutting uh, loopholes for Russian energy. Uh, that's being accelerated, of course, because Moscow, uh, by Moscow's decision uh, to cut Poland and Bulgaria off um, you know, because they're refusing to pay for uh, energy in rubles. Uh, it's been 10 weeks. How are, the, are these sanctions having the impact that we want them to have from your standpoint? Uh, yes and no. The, um, the macroeconomic impact of the sanctions on the Russian economy is uh, devastating. The impact on Vladimir Putin and what I'll call the palace economy i.e. his financial uh, network uh, that he spent uh, decades uh, putting together, um, that is less significant, unfortunately. And my view is, uh, and, and my experiences with sanctions and non-sanctions-based economic uh, uh, warfare-related approaches, is you really got to get the, to the things that matter most to the person you're trying to affect, who is a leader, uh, in North Korea, we made a, a we didn't use sanctions. We made an effort to target the personal finances of Kim Jong Il, uh, the then leader of North Korea, and we did by attacking uh, this bank in Macau and doing that in the context of other efforts that were ongoing that were less public. Um, on Putin, the guy's got this massive global financial network. Uh, unfortunately, it's maybe somewhat unwell, but it certainly is alive, and um, I I believe that even though he's got uh, a sense of financial independence and impenetrability, um, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think that we can uh, deny things that he spent, again, decades putting together, putting money all over the world. He did this himself with the help of about 10 people, 
um, that network at the very least needs to be defanged, defunded, and, uh, you know, dismantled. So what in your mind need does, does the West overall need to be doing uh, to better pressure him, right? Um, uh, we, you know, noted that the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece that they are getting, you know, as you just mentioned, right, they are getting uh, a lot of the gas and energy revenue uh, because a lot of countries around the world continue to do business with Russia. Uh, they're doing business with Russia in rubles. So that sort of takes them beyond our gun sight uh, a bit. How, how, what more do we need to be doing, uh, David, to really target this, really cause it to bite uh, if, if our interest is, um, I mean, both to punish Russia, but also, um, you know, change Vladimir Putin's course and make it very difficult and increasingly difficult for him to not just wage war, but actually stay in power. Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the key thing is to understand that Putin, um, somewhat uniquely uh, for leaders in the world economy, actually, in effect, co-founded a bank named Bank uh, Rosida. Uh, in 1991, when he was the KGB resident uh, in charge of economic issues in um, uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, he did that uh, with a number of key associates who remain in his absolute inner circle, uh, a guy named Yuri Kovalchuk, who's known as Putin's piggy bank to people in the world, uh, a guy named Nikolai Shamalov. These are all these people that you see uh, around Putin more often than the people who have to stay 40 feet away. These guys actually can sort of sit across from him. Um, they all share a, 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 a dachas uh, on a lake uh, outside of St. Petersburg where they um, gather in the summertime. Uh, these guys, are, it's basically Putin's inner circle club. Those, those individuals have something in common. They're tied back to this bank, Rosea, and then they're all involved in aspects of uh, control and influence that are sort of at the top of the food chain in, in, in Moscow. That includes uh, Gazprom, Gazprom Bank, which is the you know main financial arm of Gazprom, Rosneft, the main oil company, uh, National Media Group, which is the main TV station and media uh, company. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously Bank Rosai itself, which has been the bank that went into Crimea uh, and, and took over the Crimean financial system in 2014 um, quite purposely. So it wasn't just any bank that was going in there. It was Putin's bank, okay? And then uh, I fully expect that to be the bank that starts to move in in the next uh, week or two into the Donbass as the uh, Russian ruble is now uh, uh, being forced to be used by the people there who are occupied. Um, the, we can counter uh, that network of companies we don't even have designations on Gazprom and Gazprom Bank uh, at the Treasury Department. So we haven't sanctioned this, uh, partly for fear of disrupting the, the Europeans' access to um, dollars uh, for clearing their uh, uh, payments uh, for uh, Russian natural gas. By the way, Russian natural gas has increased in exports to Europe in the last year, not decreased. Uh, so Russia is actually making uh, a windfall on, on gas exports to Europe. My view is we've got to get in the way of that. And the Europeans will just have to deal. Um, they, 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 it's going to be difficult for them to survive without Russian gas. But Russian gas is the um, most important lever of economic influence that we have. And again, it, it, it comes right under uh, the entity, Gazprom, that Putin uh, actually was involved in establishing as well as an offshoot from Bank Rosayan. 
And I think that, you know, at the very least, the United States should not be clearing any transactions through our financial system for any of these entities that are critical to Putin's own control mechanism. And that includes the bank, Rosaya, the, the Gazprom, and Rosneft, and, so, and several others. Uh, but, but, but to me, we've really got to focus on going after that money that's tied to that constellation of interest, that not every oligarch is the same. Okay, it doesn't, it's not to say that Oleg Deripaska, the aluminum guy, is not an important contributor to Putin, but he's not really in the inner circle the right. same way. He just gives, they all have to give their cut to Tony Soprano, Putin's Soprano. Okay, it's a Soprano state. Um, but it doesn't mean they're the folks that are sitting down at the, at the dining table in the Italian restaurant with Tony. Okay, so you gotta, <laughs> you gotta think about this. If, because I believe that, again, Putin spent decades putting together this global financial nest egg network around the world. It, it's, it's centered around those entities I laid out and profits that they've skimmed that they pushed outside of Russia for decades. That money's still outside of Russia. It may be between 100 and 200 billion dollars. I think it's closer to 200 billion. We have yet to seize anywhere near the amount of money that is should be in the crosshairs. And we and, and I know the administration is making an effort here, but I think that it could be more focused and more um, aggressively implemented. And, uh, you know, and, and we have had sanctions on Bank Versailles since 2014, but it hasn't put it out of business. So that's why I advocate using the same tool we used against the North Koreans and against Hezbollah, which was Section 311 of the USA Patriot Act, uh, to designate uh, Versailles. Uh, as a primary money laundering concern, meaning it's basically this bank is just making it totally radioactive for anyone in the world to deal with who wants to have a relationship with the United States. Uh, that is a much pow more powerful tool in terms of practical effect than sanctions uh, in the conventional sense. Um, I, and, I, and a moral I, break comports with the reality. Another thing that we should be doing is, even though it may seem gratuitous, I don't think it is, there's one thing that Putin really hates in terms of sanctions. It's called the Magnitsky Act. Ironically, he murdered Sergei Magnitsky, Magnitsky, the lawyer of a guy named Bill Browder, who was a very wealthy hedge fund manager, American hedge fund manager in, in Russia, who then uh, turned on uh, the, the Russian government under Putin. And, uh, uh, and then his lawyer was murdered, uh, uh, who was the guy who was defending him from uh, a legal onslaught that Putin had personally helped uh, organize from the top down. <laughs> so was... Uh, uh, a number of other uh, uh, key people in Russia, uh, including uh, Peskov, the former uh, deputy prime minister under, um, well, under during Russian governments in the, in the 1990s. But they, the point is these, these people were murdered uh, by Putin himself, in effect. He didn't pull right. the trigger on it, but he had him killed. And I think it, he should be designated under this Magnitsky Act, even though he's already been sanctioned by the Treasury. No one really noticed that just because it messes with him. He hates the Magnitsky Act. He's made a huge effort to oppose it. So my view is you got to give the bad guy a taste of his own medicine, you know? And then we need to crunch down, not just on um, trying to um, freeze assets, but we need to m work aggressively to try to seize assets. One way you can facilitate that legally in the world uh, in a much more defined way than we currently have just through our own sanctions, which don't allow us to freeze money in Europe or the Cayman Islands of the Bahamas, um, is to use the racketeer influence corrupt organization, the mob statute, RICO, 
And uh, I know there's talk about it in the Department of Justice, and uh, there's some legislation that's uh, hopefully going to pass the Hill to uh, very soon here to Congress to uh, uh, expand the, the um, aid, military aid to Ukraine. But it also includes an important provision that uh, sanctions evasion would become a RICO predicate act, which means that if you're uh, trying to facilitate or carry out sanctions evasion to allow Russia or Putin particularly to continue his uh, evil reign, uh, RICO can then be, you can be charged with RICO, which is powerful because, uh, you know, all it takes is two strikes and you're out under RICO. You just need, you know, you need two crimes and they have to be tied to a hub and spoke strategy. And at the hub, in this case, would be Putin himself. That we right. basically indict him. Uh, and by the way, you can indict him as a war criminal. We can indict him as a money launderer. We can indict him ironically for violating his own sanctions if this legal amendment passes. Those acts alone mean that anybody under Putin's organization, which would need to be defined very uh, clearly by the Department of Justice, i.e. Gazprom Bank, Gazprom, its leadership, um, all the, the bank Russia individuals, all their money all over the world, all of that literally would flow down from Putin being indicted under RICO. In theory, we could go around the world and we could, uh, under mutual legal assistance treaties, which we have with a vast majority of countries around the world, um, we can request that they freeze and then forfeit assets. That money can actually then flow back into a reconstruction fund. Uh, to, uh, and a fund to basically support the, the ongoing uh, resistance uh, uh, and, and the take back of, of the Ukraine uh, from the Russians by the Ukraine and take back, you know, the, 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 the uh, eastern Ukraine, I should say, by the Ukrainians against the Russians. That, 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 that fund, those funds could be basically used actively in, uh, against Putin. So you're basically deploying his own money, right, to go after him. I mean, I think that if we if we conducted this as sort of an economic war campaign, okay, not just sort of whack-a-mole strategy or a strategy of sort of what they're trying to do, actually, more than whack-a-mole, it's, it's, it's more like they're trying to turn a, a faucet uh, on or off. They want, to, they want to sort of modulate the economic pressure to try to induce Putin into changing his behavior. I don't think there's any chance of that. We have to go to war with him economically. We need to make his life a living hell as much as we possibly can, okay? And I do think there are things we can do that would impose costs on him that have not been imposed. I couldn't agree with you more, all right? If you're going to do this, then you have to do it to win. And he's not listening to these subtleties and nuances, right? I mean, this is very American. A uh, little bit like the Vietnam War, right? We're sending messages to the it's North Vietnamese. Really like you're the not Vietnam. sending any. You're not sending any messages to them. You're just yeah. We're not. We're literally list. letting the quag. We're we're sort of entering into sort of this. We think he's just going to because he's in a quagmire uh, from a macroeconomic standpoint. We think that's going to decisively affect him. Well, it's not. He doesn't no. care. The, and again, his palace economy is making more money now than before. The natural gas price boom, where gas prices have skyrocketed, I think like 5X or something, at the, in, or at least they did initially uh, in Europe um, in terms of Russian exports of natural gas. His bottom line is, unfortunately, that he's making more money than, than, than now than before the war. We've um, got to wh- change that. We have to bring down our goal should be to crush his palace economy and those surrounding him and give them basically no way out. Uh, and I think we can actually do it because they've got 
hundreds of billions of dollars stashed around the world. And if they, they right now, they may have difficulty accessing it, but it's still theirs. It's through a huge network of front companies. Um, but those front companies, if you use, you know, modern commercial data tools and financial intelligence, which our government uh, collects uh, uh, very well, and I've been pleased to have been at the forefront of helping in that area over the years, um, we do have sufficient information to be able to dial in precise effects to Putin's personal piggy bank and to crush it. And but but that's going to require us being, you know, um, less indis- we have to be more indiscriminate. We have to basically say, you know, again, no more hands behind our back. We're going to go full out punching this guy and we're going to hit. We have to hit him and we have to hit the things that he has personally helped build. Those have yet to be disassembled in my mind. I don't see any sign of network disruption in Putin's personal financial network that is significant enough to significant significant enough to make him think twice. We may never be able to financially convince him to do anything, but we can create a situation where those surrounding him don't really, there's there's no real way out for them. That let me, let can me. put pressure on Putin, trust me. We, 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 we have less than two minutes left, and I have to ask you, uh, David, the secondary sanctions question. Uh, there are those who say, look, the United States can't go to economic war with everybody. What you're suggesting is putting pressure on our European allies and partners, which we want to try to resist, right? We want to work with them. What's the role of secondary sanctions in this? Because there are people sort of annoyed enough that they're losing money in Russia. They're now making the case, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's not, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to be doing trade with China as well, and we have business interests. I don't discount that. But and then there's well, you would offend the Indians if you do this, right? I mean, ultimately, you're going to economic war and folks are going to get damaged and hurt in that, or it's just a waste of time and effort, right? You're just doing it for so, an optical illusion. So I have how do we do the next clear phase of this? idea? My, my view is there's the main way to affect Putin's sanctions evasion right now, which I'm sure the administration is has fully on its mind given their recent uh, discussions. Uh, uh, over the weekend with the Chinese government about its efforts to help the Russians avoid sanctions um, would be for us to use this USA Patriot Act to target uh, not necessarily a Chinese bank, but target a Chinese clearing sphere for dollars called CHATS, which is run out of Hong Kong. It's it's tens of billions of dollars uh, a a day uh, in um, of an ability for 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 the for people to basically clear their transactions in U.S. dollars without touching the U.S. Federal Reserve System or or New York City and our banks there. Um, it's been a huge workaround for sanctions uh, evaders for years. Uh, I believe we need to send a message to the Chinese that we're just not going to accept accept us, and we we should we should actually impose a, 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 a Section three eleven penalty uh, against that clearing sphere itself. That would really hurt the Russians right now because they're relying increasingly on that uh, capability as well as China's own interbank payment systems, which is uh, called uh, SIPs, which is an alternative to uh, the U.S. system. So these things are sound really technical, but I'm telling you, you want to, you really want to hurt these guys, that will hurt them. India, it's more of a sort of barter type settlement. Um, they do, they do move cash as well, of course, but a lot of that will go through China, through Hong Kong. So frankly, imposing a cost on, on uh, via Hong Kong to me is the most uh, uh, significant way to affect the network other than just sanctioning 
all these entities tied to oil and gas that have not been sanctioned by the U.S. government. There are those who say that we could actually be breaking the dollar-based system around the world. On the other hand, it looks like our adversaries are moving in that direction anyway. What is the risk of taking financial actions that to some, they worry about precipitating the end of the dollar as the reserve currency. Is that something that folks should be worried about at this point? Or is that uh, an I, I actually, concern? I don't really worry about it at this point. There, there, there is a, um, there's no sign that the Chinese have actually started to unwind uh, their US dollar uh, bond holdings significantly more than they have over the last five years, where they have been gradually unwinding it. Uh, um, I, I don't see any precipitous move to dump the dollar. Uh, and I don't really think that they could afford to do it. Um, I think there is a, a longer term potential for China's uh, digital RMB, its uh, electronic uh, currency to start to eat on the dollar's uh, heels a little bit. But I think that the as a currency for settlement of global transactions, but I don't think anything we're doing right now is going to be able to shift that uh, in, in a massive way that would be deleterious to the United States. Uh, so right now we have the commanding heights in terms of, of currencies and payments still, and we can we should take advantage of it. David, thanks so much again. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.